Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today's guest, originally from New Zealand, has been dubbed as one of the greatest authors of our time. At 28, she became the winner of the Booker Prize for her acclaimed second novel, The Luminaries, which was subsequently adapted as a six-part BBC and TV New Zealand television drama. And after 10 years, this multi-awarded author and philanthropist has finally come back with an action-packed psychological thriller about a guerrilla gardening group whose ideals and ideologies are about to be tested. Burnham Wood is a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. Elena Catton, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you very much. It's such an honour to have you in the studio. Your career has been absolutely stellar. And I want you to take us back to before it started, because talent coming out of a, a small and remote place is always remarkable. But I want to know how, how writing started for you back in New Zealand. Well, it's a funny thing to look back on because I can't remember a time when I I didn't want to be a writer and I didn't know that that was that was just my it was going to be the central kind of vocation of my life. I was very lucky growing up in that my my mum worked as a children's librarian um, when I was very little and was responsible for curating the collections of various uh, rural school libraries uh, around the South Island of New Zealand. And she would often take me with her when she went on these trips over the over the mountains to these um, little villages to uh, speak to the people at the schools. And so having a mother who was deeply invested in in children's literature and was reading a lot of the same things that I was reading, she was constantly kind of taking me to to the library with her meant for a very kind of fertile ground you know I was I, I was surrounded by books when I was growing up and 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 always kind of turning them into stories of my own mm. and I mean writing fiction writing poetry oh never poetry actually I think I might have written possibly two or three very very bad poems that <laughs> <laughs> we've um, all got some of those hidden yeah. away <laughs> no it was always fiction I was always very interested and I, I, I it was always novels as well it was always the beginnings of novels that, that then I would abandon mm. yeah <laughs> and your first book of course was came out of your your master's thesis so tell us a little bit about your education then yeah, so I grew up in New Zealand. So I was born in Canada and then came to New Zealand when I was six years old and uh, went through school there and then went up to uh, the Victoria University of Wellington where I studied English and then went on to do a master's degree in creative writing at the International Institute of Modern Letters, which is a, a huge mouthful to get through, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of New Zealand's renowned uh, creative writing course. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a, an absolutely fantastic year. It's I think like master's programs here, it's only one year long, so it's, it's not like the two-year MFAs in the in the United States, but I wrote my first novel, *The Rehearsal*, as the as my thesis during that that year. It had kind of begun life as a play, actually. I, I had a had a friend who was an accomplished saxophone player, and there was a one of those kind of competitions in Wellington at the time where you could submit a, a monologue, and if if they liked it, they would give you the money to stage it at, at, at a theatre nearby. And I'd had the idea that it might be interesting to tell the story of a, of a kind of a power play, a, a sex scandal kind of situation between a teacher and a, and a student, where both the teacher and the student were played by the same person. So the person was playing both the victim and the perpetrator of, of, of this crime of, of kind of predation. And so I, I wrote what is now more or less the first page of the novel and submitted it to um, this competition and 
didn't get anywhere with the with the piece of writing, but then came back to it a few months later and suddenly thought, oh gosh, this would be actually almost even more interesting as a piece of fiction. That, you know, you, we're very used to seeing on stage there being a kind of dissonance between the actor and then the role that they're playing. But actually, if if that could obtain in a in a fictional environment on the page, that might be even more interesting still. Mm. So the, the novel kind of grew out of that, but it was originally a, a kind of destined to be a play. And it's kind of gone back to that because it's been made into a film. <clears throat> right. The, yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... It, yeah, it had a very interesting life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's that, that kind of doubleness, I think, that is... That, that's probably the abiding kind of preoccupation of my my life really that the that that enjoyment of the of the dissonance between the 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 fiction and and the person who's consenting to the fiction mm. or or kind of submitting to the fiction i just i love the theater for that i love the i love the screen for that being able to both see the the actor who is playing the role and also being able to see the character that they're playing is is too distinct concepts or, I don't know, um, entities that are nevertheless in conversation with one another in this interesting way. Yeah. Then we wait several years and clearly you were working extremely hard because The Luminaries is not only a Booker Prize winner, but you were only 28, making you the youngest winner. I think it's also the longest Booker Prize (laughs) winner ever. I mean, uh, how many pages is it? Oh, gosh, it's, uh, in the 800s, I think, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is an extremely intricate book. Tell us about the kind of structure of it. So the novel is set in the uh, the gold rush, one of um, New Zealand's gold rushes in the, in the 19th century. And I, I knew going in that I kind of wanted to play with structure in some way. I'd become very interested in astrology as a as a kind of a primitive psychology as a as this dynamic interconnected system of personalities that was able to kind of speak to a kind of an essential relativism of of personality you know the idea that some sort of advantage in one situation could become a disadvantage in another a kind of an internality over here could work for you but then when it's paired with a kind of a another uh, attribute over here it could it could end up working against you and so I was, I was really interested in, in thinking about astrology as a system and I came upon a, a kind of piece of computer software where you could put in um, input any date you liked going right back to the dawn of time if you liked and any place on earth and this this computer program would show you what was happening in the stars at that time from that place. And so I inputted, just kind of for my own amusement, I inputted the date that gold was first discovered on the west coast of the South Island of New Zealand and then kind of sat back and watched what happened over the course of the gold rush, which kind of lasted, you know, four or five years, and tried to see if I could see a story happening of some kind in, in, the, in the stars saw some things that I really liked and then kind of picked a date on which to begin the novel. And I'd kind of conceived of it in this very kind of bombastic kind of macro way as a a book where all of the component parts of the classical heavens, there's of course the 12 signs of the zodiac, there's the seven planets that we can see with the naked eye that all of our ancestors have always been able to see without a telescope. And then, of course, the final element, which is the the point on Earth from which you're viewing all of these figures. My idea was that the book, in in the book, each of these 
component parts of the system would all be characters and that the novel would kind of follow what what were really the the real passage of the, of the of these astronomical bodies astrological bodies um over the course of one calendar year so it was it was kind of a bonkers project <laughs> I, it's 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 funny to look back on it now because I I just I don't really know what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't really know why I did it, but it was it was great fun and kind of getting this the superstructure on its feet, kind of getting it was like it kind of felt like I was getting a big cartwheel off the ground and trying to make it trying to make it go on a very narrow edge, you know. I had a lot of fun with the novel and then of course, I mean, it had this totally charmed kind of publication life because it was long listed for the Booker Prize um, before it came out. So the Booker was kind of always connected with its its life in this way that I'm very grateful for now. <laughs> and then, of course, you won. And I mean, that must have been utterly life changing. It was, yeah. It was. It was such a break with what, if, what everything that had come before. You know, the the kind of the level of exposure that that extraordinary prize brings the the invitations all, from festivals all over the world and the 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 kind of the sudden explosion and readership and kind of recognition is i mean it's it's quite overwhelming i don't really know how to compare it to anything it's just, it's just kind of so it's so unlike anything that that i had um kind of expected for myself i think and of course you'd won lots of different awards and i know that you used your winnings from some of them to to set up a a grant for for writers tell us a little bit more about that Oh yeah, so that, this was only up and running for a couple of years, but I had the idea taking an inspiration actually from a New Zealand native plant that's called the the lancewood or the horoeka, which is a I think I'm going to get this right. It's a heteroblastic plant. I think that's right. Please don't quote me on that. But <laughs> it's a plant that completely changes halfway through its growing life. So the the young version of the plant looks utterly unlike the mature version of the plant. And the young version of the plant has these serrated leaves that look very much like spears, so that's why it has the lancewood, that name. And this is to prevent predators from, from, from eating it. It's a very kind of defensive-looking plant. But then once it reaches a certain size where it can kind of take care of itself, it becomes soft and, and kind of it, it totally changes. The leaves change. It, all these dagger-like leaves fall away. And I thought it would be a really... That, that was a really beautiful metaphor for what happens to a writer that you often become you begin in a kind of a defensive mode <laughs> and you you have to kind of protect yourself because you can't you can't quite stand on your own feet and uh, and, and and trust in yourself and then there there comes a moment where where everything changes and so using that as my name I set up a grant in New Zealand that would fund New Zealand writers and uh, not to write but to read so the 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 idea was that they would just apply to for some money and they could use that money in order to read in whatever way that that kind of made sense for them yeah so it was it was it was fun while it lasted i i i kind of had ambitions to turn it into something more permanent but and then you know life gets in the way and i'm over here now but oh, absolutely. i kind of I, I like the idea of returning it returning to it at some stage yeah along your same themes as you were saying that that delight in return uh jane austen obviously an influence and somebody that you love and then you wrote the adaptation of emma Yes, that was that was an extraordinary project. I I had so much fun with that, and it it kind of fell into my lap in this in this very kind of unexpected way. I had been involved with the television adaptation of the Luminaries, and so I was working with uh, working title films in the television department. And then one day, just wandered upstairs to meet the film people, and 
They said that they were considering adapting Emma, um, which had, had not been adapted at that point for 20 years. Um, it was 20 years since the last big adaptation um, on screen, on film, I should say. And I went away and read the book, which I'd never read before, kind of to my shame, and just fell in love with it just kind of so instantly and so profoundly that um, I probably just bothered the producers with all of my <laughs> my kind of enthusiasm for, for it as a story. And in a funny kind of way, that it brought me to the place where I began thinking about this novel that's just come out now, Burnham Wood, in that just spending so much time with that book, it was this kind of formally perfect novel that Emma is, it's a... It's a novel of such symmetry, the kind of endless ironies and, and, and reflections and echoes. And the the satire is so complete. And because it's so complete, it's so incomplete. And there's, there's something so amazing and beautiful about that that I started thinking, OK, I love this book so much and I want to, I want to try and follow this example in some way. But my, my ambition with this new book was to try and do what Shakespeare, uh, what um, Jane Austen was doing with the Shakespearean comic form—the idea that everybody gets married at the end and there's a kind of a pairing off that happens in this almost this highly kind of formal, almost kind of ritualistic kind of way—I wanted to do the same thing, but towards a tragic ending, but very much using Emma as my as my kind of high priestess. <laughs> yes. Well, of course, Burnham Wood is a line from Touching Wood here, Macbeth, uh, from when Burning Wood comes to Dunsinane. Why that title? Well, I was interested in in the idea of blind spots, actually, the, the way that blind spots tend to arise out of certainties, which is the case for Macbeth, when he is told that he won't ever be defeated until... Burnham Wood comes to the castle, to Dunsinane, the castle where he lives. He takes that as a statement of impossibility because he's he's not thinking about it creatively enough. He's not kind of being flexible in the way that he's he's imagining all the ways that forests might be able to move. And so I, I became quite interested in that in a political context. You know, I, I went back to reread Macbeth in the in the months after the political upheavals of 2016 and I was thinking a lot about the future and the sense that the future was suddenly this very dark, very kind of unknown and unknowable thing that felt like it was rushing at us. Um, there were just so many unprecedented political events and, you know, un- unprecedented situations that people were finding themselves in around that time with, you know, the election of Trump and the Brexit vote and, and just the sense that our our old... Our old certainties no longer applied, but because of that, there were these kind of new certainties that were kind of rushing in in this in this alarming way. And so I I decided that I would I would try and use Macbeth as a way of engaging with our contemporary relationship with the future, I think, and our relationship with our own personal political certainties. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me that around that time there was a lot of finger pointing going on and finger wagging going on that people were saying you should have seen this coming this is all your fault this is all the if it wasn't for this group or that group then we wouldn't we wouldn't be in in this place that we're in but there wasn't really a lot of there wasn't a lot of acknowledgement of the role that each of us had played in bringing out bringing about this new reality mm. it seemed to me it seemed to me that there was a lot of a lot of blaming but not a lot of soul searching so i mean it's been described in many different ways brilliant by me <laughs> <laughs> ambition corruption and guerrilla gardening and this is uh, julian novitz who says uh, burnham wood is a horror story for our time alex preston talking about it being a dark and brilliant novel about the violence and tawdriness of late capitalism 
capitalism. And of course, capitalism is really very much a part of this book. Tony, one of your main protagonists, keeps banging on about it. He does. He's a bit of a blowhard, I'm afraid. Uh, absolutely. And he, I mean, one of the things he says is as long as you keep treating the individual as the basis of political agency, you're going to be stuck with different forms of capitalism. And that's really his, his driving force. Yeah, I mean, he was he was a really fun character to write. He's a I've known many versions of Tony. I've I've, I've sometimes been a version of Tony, although I hope I've I've kind of repented and recanted <laughs> in in those situations. He's yeah, he's somebody who has found himself kind of slightly out of step, I think, with the contemporary political left. He's a he's he has a a strong grounding in in a very kind of particular kind of Marxism and has been baffled by the way that suddenly he 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 finds himself in the position of being the bad guy relative to other people mm. who are also on the left who suddenly see him as a as a kind of an enemy you know mm. and he does talk um, about the left attacking itself yeah i mean i think a, a lot of my preoccupation in this book was born out of my own deep dissatisfaction with the state of the the contemporary left and how betrayed i feel at the at the just the the kind of the poverty of interesting ideas and 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 serious challenges that are being mounted against you know these these powerful forces that are mm. that, that are kind of taking over the way that we think and act mm. and of course one of those forces is is tech and particularly the people behind tech there's a sort of almost like a peter Thiel type character uh, oh, yes, in, I'm in very, the book. I'm very nervous whenever anybody mentions Peter Thiel in case he comes and finds out where I live and comes and murders me. But um, it's, a fict- I mean, it's a fictitious character. <laughs> he's, he is the obvious person to think about when you're thinking about tech billionaires with an interest in investing in New Zealand or put in the word investing in quotes, I suppose. As so many um, have, yeah. Right. So, yeah, Peter Thiel became famously a New Zealand citizen in um, 2012, after spending, I think, less than 10 days in the country in his entire life, purely on the basis one could only imagine that he was a rich man and so therefore desirable, you know, and, sh- and, and should skip the queue for that reason. But yeah, I mean, I I've, I've, I feel very worried about the the influence of technology, what what digital ways of thinking and algorithmic modes of interaction are doing to us as human beings, kind of doing to us as moral creatures. I feel very, very worried about that. And I wanted to dramatise that in the book, to use it as a, a kind of an, in, in the fullness of what it could offer the plot, because, of course, surveillance and and the kinds of deceptions that are possible when you're interfacing with a screen are wonderful for a plot because mm. they can be kind of endlessly surprising and ironic and so on. But I also really wanted to write a book that would stand up for the kind of interactions and the kind of meaning and the kind of kind of deeply human rooted experiences I suppose that that I think we we so deeply crave and we need as an antidote to these these very soulless experiences that we're having on on online platforms. And the third strand, of course, is this guerrilla gardening. This is the environmental strand, although that crosses over, of course, with all of the others. And it's it's really what, I suppose, puts this book into what people would call cli-fi. I don't know if you want to give it a genre. Would it be that? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy with that label. I I never really thought about the book in those terms when I was writing it. But you know, on the on the very first page of the book, there's a landslide that cuts off a remote town and a fictional town in in the South Island of New Zealand, and kind of sets the stage for the drama that is to follow. And you find out quite early on in the book that that landslide, although it has been taken by New Zealanders and by the rest of the world as a 
an act of God. It was, in fact, a man-made disaster. And I, I think that in that sense, this book is, a, is, a, is engaging with the, the climate crisis because that is what's happening all around us. We're, mm. we're, we're facing down seeming acts of God, you know, and natural disasters that are, in fact, um, man-made. Mm. Of course, the book is a thriller, though, and we shouldn't lose sight of that because on it's, it's, it's a real page-turner. It's a page-turner with a huge political message, with a huge environmental message, but it's not a message that's rammed down your throat. And you're just... I mean, the end is absolutely shocking. And it's a, oh, I'm so pleased to hear that. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's... Extra- I mean, you write it... You Sort of going back to what you were saying earlier, you write it in three stages. I mean, it's... A Play. It's three acts, mm-hmm. isn't it? It is. Yeah, I, I, I did that very deliberately. Actually, I, I'd been really interested in dramatic structure coming out of my work as a screenwriter, and had come to believe in the kind of the the essential truth of that 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 three act structure. And actually, Jane Austen's Emma is a book in three volumes, and when I went back to it as a screenwriter, I was kind of astonished at how much screenwriting wisdom could be borne out in that novel, even though, of course, it was written, you know, 100 years before before any, any feature films were <laughs> um, uh, aired or anything like that. So this book took 10 years to write, and yet, like Emma, its themes seem so fresh, so real, so relevant for today. Were you writing for that entire 10 years, or were these just thoughts slowly accumulating? And No, I've, I had the idea for the book in early 2017, so kind of late 2016, early 2017, and it, and it really came out of the political upheavals of that time, that just looking around me and thinking we're in new territory here we have a kind of a different relationship with you know political certainty we it seemed to me that everybody could agree everybody was saying we are all hopelessly polarized that was that was a statement that everybody would agree with but nobody would then follow that with a second statement which was and i am the one who needs to change you know every, everybody could agree that the polarization was bad but then thought that it was the responsibility of of the other side to do the changing mm. and that and into that kind of hopeless situation or seemingly kind of hopeless situation i i kind of wanted to i just wanted to grapple with that in in some way and I mean, it's quite a critical look at, at New Zealand's complacency, really, around corruption, environmental matters, perhaps its tendency to coast on a clean and green reputation that isn't perhaps entirely deserved. I think so. I mean, i i would love I would love for New Zealand to live up to the the image that I think a lot of people have of the country, which is of a of a benign, beautiful friendly, kind of fundamentally progressive place. But, you know, in, in my view, New Zealand is in many ways a tax haven. It's a country with, with no capital gains tax at all. And so, the, you know, of course, if you have any money in, at all in New Zealand, where do you park it? You put it in property. And then when that doubles and triples and quadruples in value, you take that money and put it into more property. And it's a country that has been incredibly hospitable to foreign millionaires and billionaires who have made no secret of their intentions to buy up tracts of land as insurance policies against you know, a future global catastrophe, which may or may not be a climate catastrophe. So I think that these things are... These are complicit acts, I think. You know, I think that New Zealand is deeply complicit in, in global inequality. And I wanted to satirise that and kind of maybe jolt the country out of... a a certain kind of self-satisfaction when it comes to 
expecting that people are going to treat it as a as a kind of a fundamentally benign and kind of good-hearted nation. Mm. I mean, it was a real wake-up call for me because I, I kind of totally bought into the, the great sort of PR image of, of the country. And to, to see this so clearly laid out by somebody who, who absolutely knows the issues, who's lived it, who's seen it firsthand, and then turns it into this rip-roaring story. I mean, I have to say it is the best book I've read this year. Oh, I mean, really I know it's only March, but I read a huge <laughs> amount. And uh, this book has just stayed with me. I've been recommending it to anybody who will listen. It's only it's only just been published. I mean, already there's a huge buzz about it. Are you excited? I am, yeah. It's, um, you know, as, as I said before, with the luminaries, um, the long list of the Booker Prize coming up before the luminaries was published, there was a way that it... It, it had such an unusual and very particular publishing life, and with with this book, I've I, it's much more. You know, I was I've been surprised much more. You know, it's it's been much more. I've I've seen the word of mouth kind of spreading. I've seen the kind of early reviews coming out, and it's 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 always I think a little bit daunting if you write a book that that has resonances with contemporary political issues, because there's a lag between the the. The time when you finish the book and the time when the book is published, anything could happen in that intervening year that would suddenly make your book seem gauche or, or you know, tawdry or or opportunistic or, or and kind of totally it's just behind. And become the, more relevant. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. So, but I mean, it's it's kind of a funny place to be in as as a writer. You know, when I was working on the book, some of the conversations I would have with my editors had to do with the character of the billionaire uh, Robert Lemoyne. And whether or not he was kind of too cartoonishly villainous, and um, you know, too too much of a kind of a, a straight up baddie, I suppose. And then, um, luckily for me, Elon Musk went and totally disgraced himself <laughs> on the world stage. And so I'm, I'm quite grateful to him actually. <laughs> uh, can you sit back now and enjoy the success of this one, or are you already on to the next? Um, I, I have actually already started working on a new book, which is really unusual for me. I I had an idea for an, another novel. Right before I finished this one, I was kind of trying to put the ending of this of this book together, and I had an idea for a new book. So, um, so that's kind of on the back burner, and I'm and I'm writing a few f- uh, feature films at the moment as well. So I'm kind of yeah, th- already already on to the next thing. And clearly, I mean, Burnham Wood's got a future in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean that would that would be interesting to see. It's you know the film industry is such an unpredictable business because it, it has to involve money and and other creative minds and kind of things coming together and, and project management and all of that kind of thing so at the moment i'm really enjoying the fact that it just exists as a novel and it's it it, it kind of belongs to me at the moment <laughs> you know? well, it's a, i mean I, I guess i'd i'd, I'd explain it as, as jane austen meets john le carre Oh, that's lovely. That'd be be a great dinner party. I'd like to go to that. Wouldn't it? (laughs) Well, you know what? Reading your book feels like I am immersed in that dinner party. It's so clever. It's so well structured. And it's such a thumping good story. So, Eleanor, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was really fun. Eleanor Catton is the author of Burnham Wood, which is published by Granter, and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Andre Nikolai Pimentuin. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.